Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 21st, 2016. This is episode 1714 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Thursday. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Doesn't have the ring that Friday used to when we did these shows on Friday. This is a listener call show where you make a call. You pick up your phone. You mash the numbers 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You get a voice message. You leave me a message, and uh, you might hear yourself on the air about a week from then. I would say after about two weeks uh, from making a call, assuming we're on regular scheduled programming, if you don't hear yourself and you uh, you want to give your give your give another shot at the call. Uh, sometimes I don't get to a call because there's just too many. Sometimes I don't get to a call because there was an audio problem with it you didn't know about. Sometimes, honestly, I get a call and I'm like, I don't want to talk about that today. I know that's wrong. I know it is. I know I shouldn't do that. But there's times when I'm like, I just don't want to take that call today. I'll take a different call. And uh, it, it, probably there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe I'm pressed for time, don't have time to research or whatever, and I think I'll go back and do it. And sometimes I never go back. So don't be afraid to call your call in more than once. In fact, if you bug me enough with it, I'll probably answer whether I want to or not. Remember, the rules to most likely get on the air, though, have a lot more to do with call quality uh, than they do with the question quality. No calling while running weed eaters or on the backs of motorcycles or driving trucks with the windows down or something like that. Uh, no calls from a cell phone when you look down. You have one bar. Make sure there's at least two so there's none breaking up like that going on. And uh, I'm likely to get your call in the air. Ask your question. Make your point. The first one or two sentences, then give details. Trust me, I do this for a living half or eight years now. That's going to make your call so much better if you don't start out with the details, but start out with the question or the point condensed down to a single sentence. And that way, if you kind of get into the details and you're like, I don't know, it doesn't matter. I know the question, I got enough details, I can probably answer it and try to help you out. Or I may, in some instances, decide to kick something over to an expert council member for Friday's show if uh, it's just something that's not my area in my wheelhouse. All right, with that, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure the show is here for you from Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day, and I hear, Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. 
Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, Get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. With that done, you know the other thing that helps to make sure this show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week? Members of the mem- members of the member support brigade, the people that say, I like what Jack does well enough to support him at five bucks a month or fifty dollars a year. And, uh, and, and by the way, it's easy to do because I'm going to get discounts on things I buy anyway. It's going to pay me back. Uh, I, I don't look at it as I have a group of, you know, a dozen sponsors. Really, I look at it as I have a couple thousand sponsors across the country that all sponsor me at the small amounts. And that's what really empowers me to do what I do. If you like my show, if you want it to be around forever, that's the way you can help make sure that happens. And again, the discounts kind of pay for themselves. Little shout out to one of our sponsors today. I was, uh, I decided I've got this little Walther P22. Um, great little pistol. Uh, and I like it. And it's, it's fun to shoot and what have you, but it's also really a, a good little handgun. Um, for carrying if my wife was to decide to carry it uh, as a smaller frame gun or sometimes even around the farm here. I, I'm a 45 kind of guy, but I do understand that a 22 does the job if you do yours, especially on things like raccoons and possums and stuff like that uh, that I might have to go out the door for at night. And I was like, I should get a, I should get a holster for this. So I start shopping for a holster. I'm like, hey, dummy, Linwood Leather built some of the awesomest holsters you can find. So I jump over to Lenwood Leather, who's a supporter of the MSB, and I'm about to order. I'm like, hey, dummy, they give a 20% flipping discount. Go get your discount code to your own thing. So I ordered from uh, Jason Davies over there today a, a really nice holster for this gun. He has them stock off the shelf and uh, got a discount on it. If, if I had been a, a paying member like one of you guys out there rather than me, uh, that saved me $11. That, that's about 20% of the cost of a year on one purchase. That's the kind of thing that's available in the MSB. I, I don't really push it real hard or anything, but I just kind of wanted to point that out to you today. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have a great American hero is born in Great Britain, and I have the first typewriter is patented. Uh, I'm going to read a great American hero is born in Great Britain. A revolution doesn't just fall from the sky like manna from heaven. It requires a number of key people to make it happen. The American Revolution will require George Whitfield, also known as Whitefield. He is born this year in Gloucester, England, in the Old Bell Inn. He will have a talent and voice and dramatic presence that will rival the greatest performers in the Globe Theater. But he will not become an actor. He will become a preacher, together with John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, George Whitfield will lead the Great Awakening in Britain, but after a break with Wesley, he will take his preaching to the British colonies. At the end of his tour, 23,000 will listen to him preach in Boston. Over his lifetime, millions will hear his words, and he will start a movement to bring black slaves to Christianity. In his last years, he will reside in Boston and die shortly before the Boston Massacre. Phyllis Wheatley, a black slave, will publish a poem 
in praise of his life. My take by Alex shrugged, the Great Awakening was instrumental in changing the attitudes of the British people, especially in the colonies. People believed in a collective responsibility, but Whitfield helped them to understand that individuals had a responsibility too. Whitfield was responsible for the massive conversion of black slaves to Christianity. Now, if we are all following along in our Bibles, that should have resulted in a massive number of slaves being freed, because according to the Bible, believers cannot be held as slaves for longer than seven years. But Whitfield didn't make that argument. He opened an orphanage in Georgia, which supported itself with the, an endowment by growing its own food. In order to stay in the black, so to speak, he needed slaves to work the field. Slavery was illegal in Georgia at the time. Think about that. Oh, dear God, no, don't say it. So he lobbied to get the law changed. He brought slavery to Georgia. Now he is mostly lost to history, even though much of what we admire about baseline American value of individuality and personal responsibility had bloomed due to George Whitfield's efforts. And what that tells us is that dramatically wonderful people that do amazing things can still be dramatically flawed. I'd like to just propose a concept here. If Whitfield did not have the power of the state behind him, he could have continued to do and could have done more of all the good that he ever did. But the biggest vice that you could have found on him, that he actually expanded slavery, was only possible because the power of the state was there and able to be used. We should think about that. When a great man like this is tempted by the power of the state because the ends justify the means and then will use that power, what of those lesser men? How much more tempted are they by what I consider the dark side, the state? My take by Jack Spearco. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first call. Remember the way to call in for a show like this, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, first caller, let's hear what you got to say. Hi, my name is Dennis, and I'm located in the Puget Sound region of Washington. Um, and I am wondering about microswales for pasture land. Last year, we had a pretty dry summer, and our pasture uh, dried out. And this year, I'm planning on grazing geese on it. And I'm wondering if I did microswales through the pasture, if I'd be able to increase my infiltration for the next year um, and maybe be able to have a um, food source for the geese throughout the summer. So uh, thank you very much, Jack, and uh, I love what you do. Thanks. Bye. All right, so number one, thank you very much for including where you are in the world. With these types of questions on livestock management, pasture, growing things, gardens, anything like that, it's so critical uh, to making a good decision, okay? So thanks for that, first of all. One piece of information I'd love to have is how big is this pasture? A half an acre, 10 acres, 20 acres, 100 acres, I mean, that... That would have some impact on the answer I'm about to give, but I'm just going to do the best I can without that knowledge. So when you're also asking about something like a pasture management or putting in something, trying to give some scale to it uh, in the future, guys, that'll help us as well. Okay, so first of all, microswales. I'm not really sure what you mean by microswales. If you're talking about like shovel-dug swales or something like that, uh, and you're talking about pasture of any size, I mean if even a couple acres, I'm probably not going out to dig micro swales and micro swales 
probably won't do very much on that kind of a scale. If you, anything you'd say pasture, I'd say it's probably, I mean, because you're talking about, let's say you hand dig something, you're talking about something a couple feet wide. Uh, I have some hand dug small scale swales that we use for some things. They're about four feet wide and four inches deep. They only have so much capacity. Uh, and they're in sheltered areas and intensively managed systems, which is where that size and scale tends to work good. Because otherwise, if you have a very long uh, swale that's not got a lot of depth to it, 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 it dries up really quick and it only can infiltrate so much water. You also mentioned putting a food forest in. We'll get to that. If you want to manage pasture with swales, you need to be looking at more of what we would call a silvo pasture uh, design, which would be we go in and we put our, our, our swales in based on the, the, the boundaries we want to create for shifting animals, grazers through the system. So the swales make good natural boundaries if we do it right. And then we put in these strips of trees and we graze the animals in between them. And if we do this right over time, we can grow the canopy up to cover most or all of what you call the inner swale or the distance between the swales, or even, let's say, 50%. Now we have shade, and the shade is as important as the swale to helping us retain water. We want shade, we want ground cover, and we want infiltration. We want all of those things. So that actually gets me to the point, though, of is the swale the right solution for you in your environment. And I don't really have enough information to know that, but it may not be based on a few things. One, you had a dry year in Puget Sound. Okay, fine. That's not the normal. And with permaculture and with any kind of holistic management of the land, what we want to do is we want to design to averages and extremes. So we want to try to put in plants that can handle, if we can, at least one zone colder and one zone hotter than where we are. That gives us a lot of redundancy. If everything could do that, or most of what's in there could do that, we have a very resilient system just to begin with. Or plants or structures that can handle a dry year, the, the driest year we've ever had, or the wettest year we've ever had. We can't always do that, though. And in the end, we have to make decisions based on what's the most likely scenario to play out over, let's say, a 10-year average. So... Swales in themselves won't fix dryness, right? They have to be part of an integrated system, and they have places where they work better and places where not so much. So it may be that you're better off just putting in trees where you want to create boundaries and start building up forests to create shade and litter and mulch to help with reducing evaporation because that's your number one enemy uh, and you're, you're probably not in what we would call a brittle landscape. So brittle landscapes are deserts. Uh, brittle, brittle landscapes are like what I have, where you have lots of rock and very little soil. Uh, we can't do a lot of water storage in the ground, so we got to get everything we can in the ground. We have a lot of erosive potential, so we want to do everything we can to stop it. And swales stop erosion. Swales are tree-establishing systems. So when you start to say micro-swale and food forest to me at the same time, I'm seeing a disconnect in, and I don't mean this in any way offensive, but your understanding of the technology, and it takes a lot to bring it up to speed. So you might want to do some more research on food forest, food forest establishment with swales. Because then we're looking at things that at least would be the size of what you might put in with a mini excavator. Six to eight feet wide, around a foot deep, akin to what I've got in my eastern pasture, if you've seen my videos there. 
Those are not micro swells. I would call those not huge swells, but full size swells. Uh, we're talking about swells with about 500 feet. That is what I have. 535 linear feet that have a holding capacity of 24 to 26,000 gallons when they're full. And they've probably already infiltrated 15,000 before they start to actually fill up because they have to saturate the ground before they'll fill. And that's a significant thing. But if you put that out in the middle of a field and you don't plan it and you don't deal with it from a standpoint of dealing with the evaporation from wind and sun both, then you don't get that much of a, of a, of a water boost. You do get a lot of nutrient spread and things like that. So I think this is one to go back and take a look at because I'm feeling this way. This is how I'm feeling with this. This may be a perfect place for an application of key line plowing with pasture establishment. Where we take something like a subsoiler, we find a main contour frame in your land to work off of, and we come about one-half to one percent off to spread water from the valley to the ridges. And you put that in and you establish your trees at the intervals that you want. In all of this, this is very important, and this is where it makes it, everybody needs to pay attention to this. If you're ever going to do swales, ponds, tree lines, anything, water access structure, key on access for this one. Swales can be access pathways, but when they're full of water, maybe not. And you can cut off your access. You can design out your access. So you need to be thinking about moving equipment, animals, people, materials across landscapes. Because if you go out and, let's say, put in every 30 feet a micro-swale, you know, something you would do with maybe a, a, a rototiller, right, and, and a, snow, a, a snow pusher, right? I mean, you could do that. You could take a rototiller through a line and then take one of those, I can't think what they're called now, but they can push snow with them and just kind of go there and push it and, and all the way and maybe do a second pass and do that again. And you could put in swales actually pretty quick with small-scale equipment that way. Um But you're going to have this, you know, if you try to drive across it, and you kind of design out your access. So really think about your locations. Here's one more thing. Establishing a food forest with geese. This might make your job a lot harder. Geese, I've dealt with this. When you put in something new, especially small whips for trees, which are very affordable, a lot of times they get like pissed off at it for some weird reason, and they, they don't browse it or just graze it. They attack the shit out of it and kill it. I had them kill grapevines on me. I've had them kill young trees on me. I've had them tear bark off of stuff. They just go absolutely nuts. You may want to get a little bit further into your establishment before you introduce geese. That does not mean you can't put geese into the system. But what you might have to do is put in your tree lines and use electro tape and, and fence off your trees until they get up a bit before you actually let the geese at them. That might be another consideration. So if you have more information that can help me help you further with this project, give a call back and do that. I've, I've kind of given this one as much time as I can. Let's go on and take another call. Hi, Jack. I have one more question about making apple cider. I'm curious if you're making in the bottles using the balloon as your airlock. Uh, how do you know when you're done? Like, it, it, I'm trying to give it about three weeks, uh, but some one of my bottles, the balloon, seems to be uh, kind of imploding, almost like there's more air leaking out than should, or, or I can get in the vacuum. Anyway, just look forward to hearing your comments. Thanks. Bye. Um, I, I had to listen to that a couple times to be sure I was hearing the right word. And what he said about the balloon is the balloon is imploding. 
So it's deflated all the way and probably laying down, and it looks sad. Um, well, let's start out with the crux of the question. How do you know when your cider is done? Here's the technically correct answer. You take a hydrometer reading when you start your cider, and you know how much sugar is there, and you take an ending gravity reading with your uh, hydrometer to determine that all of the fermentable sugar has been successfully fermented. There's nothing wrong with that answer. I just don't flip and do it because I don't have time and I don't care. Uh, I'm making a couple gallons of hard cider. I look at it, I taste it, I smell it, I know when it's done. All right, and I, I think you'll get to where you'll be a little more confident and okay with that. So this is what I do. When I look at a cider and it has cleared, even if it's not completely clear, it's, it's pretty much done with fermentation and things are settling out. And I'm going to make a decision to just leave it alone and bottle it, or maybe I want to do what's called rack to a secondary. That's where I get another fermentation uh, jar or vessel or bottle or whatever you want to call it, and I siphon the cider from one to the next, leaving behind all of the lees, right, which is all of the yeast and all the sediment and everything that filtered out, and let it clear for a while longer. And I generally do that with ciders. If I'm going to rack at 14 to 21 days, and I give them at least another 7 to 14 days minimum, I'm looking at at least a month before I'm going to bottle a cider. That's actually really fast. But I found with, if unless you're putting a whole bunch of other crap in there, if it's just apple juice and maybe some sugar to boost it and good quality yeast, it's generally enough. And with apple cider in particular, when it really is done, it should be clear. I mean, it should be almost, like you pick the bottle up and look through it, it looks as clear as, as, as anything could other than the color. Right, So that's how I know it's done. I taste it. It tastes right. It doesn't have a lot of sh residual sugar still in it. If it looks done and it tastes sweet, you need to pitch another batch of yeast or something, get it restarted, because something got it stuck. This generally doesn't happen with cider, so it's usually not that big an issue. It's a bigger issue with things like meads, where the honey just won't finish, right? And there's just too much residual sweetness in there, and that can cause problems if we bottle it and things turn back on and you start working again and we blow bottles up and things like that, okay? So let's get to the balloon issue. It's probably the case that over time that balloon just developed a pinprick in it and it's just leaking air. And it is probably done, but let's, done is two different things. Done fermenting, done as in ready to bottle, two different things. It probably still needs more time to settle out. So, you can either just relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew, okay, which is what Charlie Papazian would say, and, and let it finish. Don't worry about the balloon. The, the air's not going in there. Here's why. Unless you opened it, looked in the hole, and went and blew in there and, and displaced the CO2. The CO2 in that container is heavier than oxygen, and it's not going to come up and out. And as long as there's a wafer-thin layer of CO2, On the top of that liquid, oxygen's not going in there, and you're going to be okay. And you're not going to have vinegar flies or anything flying in there. It'll be all right. Remember, this stuff used to be made in a barrel in a, in a barn with, with, a, with like a, a piece of cheesecloth or linen over it. And, and we've gotten really scientific and almost like chem lab level with this stuff now. And I was the worst person about this. I used to brew beer, man. I sanitized every nook and cranny, and uh, I was worried about it. And the reason I got so loose with my sanitation is Dick Ferguson came here and we made some beer together for a workshop, and he looks at my water with my star sand, which is a sanitizer. He goes, 
well, star sand doesn't work here. I said, what the hell do you mean it doesn't work here? He goes, it's an acid. It's not supposed to be cloudy. Like when you put star sand on my water, it turns cloudy like milk. He goes, when I use star sand in my water, it stays clear. I'm like, really? I said, it's always looked like that. He goes, yeah. He goes, your, your water is so alkaline and so hard that basically when you put the star sand in it, you're neutralizing. And I'm like, well, I made a whole bunch of beer and none of it went bad. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I started thinking about that and went, you know, I knew so many people that made homemade wine and stuff like that when I was a kid. Buddy Shoemaker is a guy I talked about on Facebook today that had huge social capital in Jonestown, Pennsylvania, which is it, laughingly you would call it a suburb of Minersville. And if you knew either place, you'd laugh at calling either one of them a suburb of anything. But they never did any of this crap. They didn't use bleach. They, they, they rinsed everything out with good, clean, hot water, made sure everything was clean, and they rocked on with life, and they made a really good product. So that's kind of the approach I've taken. So when I you know, clean out a, a fermentation vessel, now I fill it up with hot top water, shake the shit out of it, dump it out, and rock on. So what I'm saying is relax about your balloon. Just relax about it. Uh, don't go shaking it up or nothing like that. And if you want to transfer it, transfer it. If you want to be a little bit more careful with exposure, then it might be time to start investing in some airlocks and maybe some other fermentation vessels racked to a secondary and use an airlock. Airlock costs a dollar or two. Uh, just go to, to Amazon, type in airlock. You'll find tons of them. And uh, what I like to do, I do a lot of fermenting with the, like the jugs that apple juice come in, the ones with the screw on top. And what you do is you get an airlock, and they make stoppers. I don't remember what number they are, but they're the ones for putting like an, an individual beer bottle. And you take the lid of the apple juice bottle and you drill a hole in it. I think it's five eight. I don't remember how big it is. It's a pretty big hole. And you shut, you know, drill a hole that you can shove that stopper in. And then you stick your airlock and then you screw it on the bottle. They're great little one gallon fermenters. And they make bigger stoppers that go in like one gallon glass jugs and do the same thing. If you get an airlock in there, you're gonna you're gonna kill the exchanges of gas. The, the, the nothing from the outside can get through the water and in. But the balloons work pretty good. I had one that kind of went flat like that. I left it up there for a month up in my, my aging room upstairs, which is my guest bedroom. It's my meat aging room. And I racked it uh, to a secondary after about a month of that. I tasted it when I racked it. And I went, if it was clear, I'd drink it now. So I just wouldn't sweat it too much. And I think there's a lot of you guys trying these small batches of meat and cider and things like that. Um, and I don't want you to get too uptight about it. Remember, you're only making a gallon at a time. If you end up with something that smells like a Band-Aid or tastes bad or whatever, it ain't going to kill you. You'll just go, okay, I can mess that one up. And you're going to have a bad batch from time to time. And you're, you know, you're going to do something like, um, I was listening to an interview today about a guy that made a peach mead. And he just took peaches off a tree and cut them up in pieces and left the skin on them, threw them in there, and, and put the, the, the mead must on top of it. And he said it was so bad when you opened a bottle you could smell it from across the room. Because there was some kind of microorganisms on the skin of those peaches. That's a live and learn thing. you know. But if you had taken those peaches and put them into your fermenter and poured 160 degree water on top of them and let that sit there for a little bit before you did the rest of your mead making, you probably would have killed that off. 160 degrees is your friend. Because it'll, it'll take a while to get down to about 140. And at that time, it'll kill off most of that stuff, knock it back to where your yeast take the lead in what they're doing. Um, so, you know, that's... Always an option, too. So anyway, let me know how it works out for you. Don't sweat the deflated balloons, guys. And sometimes if there's a balloon with a hole in it that doesn't want to fill up, just yank it off and 
put a new balloon on it. Let's take another one. Jack, what is the secret to keeping your feet warm in cold weather? The background. So I'm a scoutmaster and just recently went on a camp out and taught all the scouts about wearing uh, the right kind of socks, wool socks, uh, two pairs, not keeping them too tight, wearing good sturdy boots. But uh, standing around, my feet got cold, cold, cold. And the only way that they got warm was to uh, take them on a hike and uh, get moving. So survival, is there uh, something else that I can do to keep my feet warm even when I have to be in a stationary position? As a soldier, I know how important it is to keep your feet warm and dry and uh, not let them fail you. But thanks for all you do, and uh, have a good day. Yeah, it's not an easy one to solve. I remember um, more hunting it being an issue than in the military. I did uh, basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and it got pretty cold on some of our field training things and all, but I ended up doing 90% of my time in Panama and Honduras, and as you might imagine, I didn't get cold there very often. But I remember being on deer stand, wiggling the hell out of your toes inside your boots and not wanting to move because you don't want to give your location away, especially hunting late-season archery or second-season archery, uh, more so than, than gun season where you know you really are stationary, you're on stand, you're waiting, and it's cold. And it's amazing. You can feel pretty good. But once your feet or hands are cold, or feet and hands are cold, you're cold. But part of this, and there's there's like no one answer to it, and some people are more susceptible to others, but part of this is understanding why are my feet cold in the first place? What is causing me to feel less cold in my legs, my core, my arms, but my hands or my feet, my extremities are getting cold. Well, if you have poor circulation, that's a chronic problem. But assuming that's not the problem, here's what's actually going on. You're starting to get cold, period. You're starting to get cold, period. And because you are, your body is going into a heat conservation mode. And what your body's innate intelligence says is, it is far more important that we keep the lungs, the heart, the chest, the organs, the, the core, the large muscles, the arm large muscles. It's more important to keep them warm than the hands and feet. Here's why. I can still run. Right, I can still move. Yes, some of my dexterity issues in my fingers or toes may be limited, and I might have harder times with um, you know, uh, my, my minute you know, skill levels of, of, of small objects and things like that. But when it comes to staying alive, if I need to get away from a bear or a lion or something like that, if my body's warm or if I need to fight, right, as long as I can still move my body, then I can still function. So the bot and, and if I need to, if I start having damage, even if I get frostbite and a finger falls off, I need to protect my brain for my cognitive function, my lungs so that I can breathe, my heart so that I can pump blood, my internal organs so that I can digest and process food and, and get rid of waste. The body knows this. So it begins, when, when you start to get cold, it begins to focus on heating the core at the expense of the extremities. This is why you can say, overall, I'm not cold, but my feet are cold. But here's what you never, you hear people say, I'm, I'm not really cold except my feet or my hands or something like that. You know what you never hear somebody say, I'm actually really hot, but my feet are cold, unless they're sick or something. So what does that tell you? The number one way 
to actually do the best you can, and this doesn't mean going out in bare feet and hands is going to be okay now, but the number one way we can actually keep our hands and feet warm is to keep a whole body warm. No one else probably ever told you that before. But but that's the case. If, you're, if your core is really warm, almost to the point where it could be a little cooler, your extremities are going to be much less likely to get cold because your body's not going to start that process of intensifying its ability to warm itself further and further in. And, and if you get in a really bad cold weather situation, that's what will happen. You'll, you'll, your hands and feet will be numb, and, and your internal core is fighting to stay alive. And this is just a little tiny microcosm of it when we're out you know, hunting or fishing or something like that or camping and you're sitting still and you're, you start to get cold there first. Now, what can you do? Let's start out with what not to do. When I was a kid, we used to go bear hunting all the time. And there was this guy, and he had a pair of these Mickey Mouse boots. These were from like the Vietnam era. And these were like these big old goofy-looking boots. And you can pump them up with air. And they're supposed to put an air... Uh, chamber between your feet and the outside air for insulation and help keep your feet warm. And when everybody asked him if they worked, he said, yeah, they worked. And my uncle said, they don't work. I said, well, why does he say they work? He says he's walking around like a big gonad with those those, uh, those stupid-looking boots on and the only boots he brought with him this year, and he's not going to tell you they don't work and look stupid. So I'm like, well, how do you know that? He goes, if they worked, they'd still be being used, and the Army got rid of them. Uh, I see. Okay. So there's a lot of old gimmicks and stuff for staying warm that don't really work. When I was a kid, the big thing you did to try to stay warm was you wore what we called felt packs. And these were basically like a rubber boot to make sure your foot stayed dry. And a big, thick felt liner, you put a big old wool sock on, you put that boot on, and man, you thought, my feet are toasty. Well, you'd get out in a deer stand, and the first thing that would happen is that rubber would chill down really, really bad. Since it was rubber, your feet didn't breathe really well, so your feet were wet. Now, the wool can still insulate when wet, but it's sure better that it's not. And the wool can't transpire the, the, the moisture off, so the moisture stays on your feet. So then the cold begins its inward journey, and you're also starting to get cold overall. And then your body starts taking away once again. So it's a bad situation gotten worse. So the first thing, bundle up really good around your core and your head and your face so that your body doesn't feel a need to sacrifice heat. Number two, use waterproof materials that breathe. Gore-Tex is my favorite. Um, if you do that, and if you're going to use wool, merino wool. Now, I know Steve Harris brought his buddy on that does everything with foam and crap like that, and making super suits to live in the Arctic and whatever. And if you want to do that, fine. And I know Steve doesn't like wool, and I'll like set it as bull. Right, it is, it is probably the best material, but what I like to do if I'm going to be in a really cold environment is I have Gore-Tex socks, Gore-Tex thin socks, and then the wool goes over top of that to create an additional layer, and then I wear a Gore-Tex boot. This allows my foot to breathe, and it gives me two layers of protection from water getting in, whether it's some melted snow, whether it's some stepping in something or nothing, because here's what happens. You step in something, a little bit of water goes in your foot, and you're like, Damn it, we've all had that experience. You're like, ah, but you're walking or doing whatever, and it seems like it dried up. It seems like it went away. It seems like it's not that big a deal anymore. But when you get where you're going and sit still, that water's there, and it goes to work on your feet. Okay? So quality long johns, things like that, good warm body, warmer than you need to be to keep the feet warm. Um, and then there are other things. The... Uh, the, the, the heat soles, like they're like, you know, the hand warmers that you shake up and keep your hands warm and make them to go, those work. 
Those definitely work. They're not the most comfortable thing in the world to be in your boot, but they do work. And if you're going to be stuck somewhere and you can have them with you in advance, that's a good way to go. Um, you know, as far as a survival situation, start a freaking fire and be warm, period. Um, as far as like a tactical situation, for me, that stuff on a civilian level that I'm going to be in the woods worried about not moving because my feet are cold and the enemy might see me is out of the world of probability. It, it really is. You're not going to militia fight the UN or whatever. And if, if you're in the military, then that's a question for your command, right? What equipment do we have available? What is the latest cold weather technology that we have available? But my greatest uh, um, success in reducing problems with cold feet and hands, close-fitting, well-breathing, long-john underwear, really nice out-coating Gore-Tex, keep the body dry, keep it breathable, keep the core warm, and then wear good quality footwear, and that That's done more for me than just continuing adding more layers onto your feet uh, because you're, you're not addressing the actual problem, which is the body is beginning to cool, and you feel like you're not cold, but that's because your body is, is burning calories and, and, and holding blood in that area to keep you warm versus having enough to distribute all around like a good radiator system. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jake. It's John, West Virginia. I'm a... Call to reveal something. I'm a. I leave Friday for a rehab center in Georgia to get off alcohol. I'm not proud of myself, but I'm doing what I got to do. Because I, I realized, you know, I claim to be a survivalist or a prepper. And, But I, I'm drinking myself today. Just, uh, just want to, I don't know, maybe the support of the, the community might help me. Thanks, man. And I'll see you when I get back. When I first started listening to that call, I didn't know whether to play it or not because I, I couldn't tell at first if John was making that call just to let me know or if he really wanted it heard. But at the end, with a plea for some support from the community, it was a pretty easy thing to let that play. For those of you that are newer to the show, we haven't heard from John for about a year, but he's kind of like a, a minor celebrity in the TSP community. We even featured him in the uh, zombie parody we did for... Uh, for Halloween one year. He's been around a long time, and he's asked a lot of great questions and given us a lot of great insights over the years. So he is not just a listener that just called in for the first time with this. This is a guy that many of the people that have been with this show since the very beginning when I was doing it in my car have known for years. And and, and kind of he's an, an endearing fellow. People just love his voice. So he's been a big part of this. And, and I, I played this just so I could say, That I think it would be great. I'm sure John, even if he's in rehab, he's going to have access to this show. Uh, or he wouldn't ask for support. You're going to be able to at least look on his phone or whatever and see what's going on. 
And uh, I think if you saw a lot of comments that said, you know, we believe in you, we think you can get this done, and, and just the fact that you give a damn, I think would really help a person get through something. And, and you know, I, I'll put it to you this way. I'm a drinker. I like to drink, but I also know my limits. Um, and I don't drink constantly every day or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I don't have trouble functioning or can't get up in the morning and, and stuff like that. Um If you feel like you have an alcohol problem, you probably do. And you need to do something about whether it's it, it's the measure that John's taking or just quit or whatever it is you have to do. If you think you have a problem, you probably do. And that can be with anything. That can be with a drug. Uh, that can be with a behavior. Um, not everything is okay for everyone to do. And, and it doesn't mean a person is weak or whatever. I mean... Um, I have no idea. I know there are people, for instance, that can recreationally use a drug like cocaine and not get addicted to it. I know there are people that do that. I don't know if I could, and I wouldn't consider myself weak because I couldn't. Um, so, I mean, I know there are people that can pick up and smoke two packs of cigarettes uh, a day for a couple weeks, enjoy it, I don't know how the hell how, and then not smoke anymore, and then do it again six months from now. But most people get addicted to cigarettes, and I don't think those people are weaker than the person that can recreationally use tobacco that way. Um, and there's people that can engage in certain behaviors I won't go down the road into, but are generally considered not a good thing, uh, but without it taking over their lives. And then, you know, other people can't. I guess, you know, some people can look at pornography once in a while and say, that's, that's interesting or whatever, and some people let it become an obsession would be one example. And if you have a problem with anything to where it's taking over your life or seriously adversely affecting your health, please seek help and do something about it. And don't feel like a weaker person for doing it because doing that takes tremendous strength. And I consider it extremely admirable. And uh, I see a lot of uh, a lot to admire in John, not only being willing to take this step, but to reach out for additional support. And uh, I know you can get through this, John, and I, I wish you the very best, uh, and I hope you do get through it. And uh, I, I hope you not only get through it, but you come out of the end stronger. Uh, there'll be a song at the end today that I think will speak to some of this and to some other things, so we'll hold it till then. But again, uh, if you could just come by, the site for this, um, episode 1714, and just just make a quick comment. Hey, John, I know you're going to get through this. Or, hey, John, I remember hearing you before, and I'm sorry you're going through tough times. Or whatever you have to say, just a sentence or two. This is one of those things that's so easy to do. You should feel bad if you don't do it, if you know who John is and you like hearing from him. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Steph here. Love your show. Got a quick question about protecting a hard drive from a computer. I'm looking online for a fire safe, a fireproof safe. Wondering if you had any suggestions on that. Surprisingly, I'm not finding anything that both fits your typical laptop as well as other materials and that is actually fireproof. I believe the uh, UL rating is 72 for, for uh, some items. Not real sure on that. If you have any suggestions, I'd love to hear what they are. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, I, I guess I, I guess you're in some kind of a donut hole or something, because there's plenty of stuff that's like two-hour burn rated at 1,800 degrees out there. But it sounds to me like most of the stuff that we would think of, like the stuff we keep pictures and documents and stuff like that in, is a bit too small. 
And when you step up to larger, you don't want to spend that much money. So I don't really know what I can recommend for that issue. Um, you know, your typical safe that would be big enough to put a couple long guns in or more that's a fire rated safe with a two hour burn rating would be the best place. But I don't know that you're going to want to stick your laptop in there. And I'm a little, you said for a hard drive and then you said my laptop to fit. So, I don't know that most people put their laptop like away like that all the time. So I don't know if you mean like, because an external hard drive um, is pretty small. So if you're doing a backup to an external hard drive and then you know putting that in a fire safe, I think you should be able to find something small that will handle it. Uh, uh, Century makes some good products and things like that. However, can I guarantee you if you stick a hard drive into something and your house burns down and it's cooked in there, even if you open it up and survive, there'll be no damage to it? I don't know. I don't know. So this is my answer to the problem of how do I keep my files protected in case my house burns down? Carbonite. Carbonite is a service that your computer will back up to at the frequency you select and keep your data off-site. And As someone that came out of the telecommunications industry, my belief is the only way to make redundant, safe data is to locate it somewhere other than one single location. That's it. Well, and I mean, if you look at what I do, like I have no worries about all the episodes of the Survival Podcast disappearing because they're on a email dedicated server. I have copies of it, plus I have that on Carbonite, plus, well, millions of you guys have it. Uh, not millions, 100,000 100, plus of you guys have it uh, out there. It's distributed all over the place. So uh, I feel pretty safe. And the more places it is, the safer I feel that it won't go away. But things like pictures and stuff like that, um, I, I really think that makes sense. Another thing to consider is to get a rugged thumb drive Like the, the Corsair Survivor Drive, I have one 128, uh, 128 meg. I mean, that's a lot of data. That might not be all the family photos and stuff, but like critical documents and stuff. And then if that is on a keychain, well, it's with you. And, and odds are you, you're, that's not going to burn down in your house without you. Right? So that would be another way to kind of create another level of redundancy. Um, And I say pictures, unless there's something that you really wouldn't want someone else to see. You know, set up a Flickr account and put everything on Flickr. And you can set it to private if you want to. No, it doesn't mean a hacker can't break into it. Unless you're posting pictures of, you, you know, I don't know, naked pictures or something like that. I mean, or pictures of your driver's license or something. I think you're okay if somebody gets a picture of, you know, your kid playing baseball or something. So I don't think people are really looking to get a hold of stuff like that, unless you're some high-level target or something, and then you should have other redundancies in place. But my big belief is a secure backup service like Carbonite is 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 really the best way to go. It really is pretty affordable. Um, it's $60 a year for a basic individual plan. And what you can do with a little technical savvy is you can set up home sharing in your on your home network and I mean you could get a cheap refurbished computer that just sits there and does nothing other than access of one computer that every other computer backs up to and then have that one computer back up with carbonite. 
uh, and it's still there as an extra computer. I mean, that's a little bit technical, but to me, those types of solutions are far more valuable. Unless I'm misunderstanding you and there's certain data that you would like to be able to be available, Internet or no Internet, and then I'm going to say, again, I'm back to um, the Corsair Survivor, Survivor Drive in whatever size you need, or even maybe a couple of them, and, and just simply, you know, if you, if you wanted to, you could even uh, password protect the files, close that thing up, throw in the glove box in your car, unless you put your car in the garage and that burned down, and you've got it. See, now, it's, it's not in the same place. You know, I, I really feel that if you're worried about data, that it needs to not be in the same place. That, that's the only way that I'm actually okay with it. And this goes all the way back to when I used to design uh, cable distribution for computer networks and fiber optics and things like that. And we'd have a client that says, well, I really want to put in, you know, we need, we need 12 strands of fiber optics here, and, and we need, uh, we're going to put uh, 24 in for growth, but I want to go ahead and put 48 strands in uh, for redundancy. And I say, well, then let's, let's, let's take two 24-strand fibers and let's run them in totally different pathways so that if somebody goes up in the ceiling and, and, and cuts something because they're an idiot that got up there and wasn't supposed to, you have the other infrastructure redundancy. You can flip your circuits over until you splice that back together or what have you. And that usually made sense to a customer. And that's, the, that's just the way I think with this. I would rather have something highly portable like a good and again 128 uh, Corsair that's a that's a lot of data I mean that's 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 as much data as the largest iPhone has uh, iPhone users pay a little extra money to have full backups to iCloud with everything and and then I mean that is one example of a cloud service that you can use as well that that helps protect your data uh, I should probably do a show someday on just protecting your data and creating redundancies, and I probably should bring an expert on to do that. Because uh, as much as I know, um, there's people that definitely know more. And, and here's what I, here's me. I, I could go to higher-level solutions than I have. Once I get to where I'm comfortable, I have so much shit going on in my life, I don't care. I'm done. I'm finished. That's, that's enough for me. I've got these multiple redundancies in place. Everything on the phone's in iCloud. i got multiple computers. They're all backed up to one computer. One computer's going to Carbonite. Uh, my really critical stuff's on a thumb drive. My thumb drive's never without me. It's always with my keys. I'm not going to leave the house without my keys. Therefore, if the house burns down, I still have at least the data on there. Everything else is on Carbonate later. Or on, I, I mean, and so I'm done at that point. Uh, but if you want to go ultra, uber secure, uh, you know, and the other thing is like, so I don't have like a massive client database sitting somewhere that hackers would want to hack so they can steal my accounts like a, like a company that did, uh, you know, installation work or something might have. Uh, hackers are always after data like that. So I don't have the security level concerns with like a staff working here. That changes things. And then you should be talking to a professional. Uh, but I think this would answer for most people. Let's go ahead and take another one. Jack, I'm trying to buy the most utilitarian home defense shotgun that I can, one that both my wife, who's smaller than me, and I might be able to use around the house if necessary. So my question is, is it better to buy uh, a gun that's a little bit too big for her or a little bit too small for me? I expect a little bit too small for me is the better choice. And so the second part of that question is, I'm looking at the compact version of the single uh, shot, something like the partner or something like that. 
Um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Should I get the standard size and the or the uh, junior or compact model, knowing it would be uh, fit my wife better? Lastly, anything you any thoughts you have on gauge would be great. Thank you. Bye. All right, so I'm going to start out with uh, a single shot shotgun uh, of any kind. If I was going to have a shotgun to keep around the house that I might have to use for home defense, would not be my first choice, my second choice, my third choice, my fourth choice, or my fifth choice. It would rank between not having a gun and having a gun. So if this is a cost issue, then I would say you would want to look at kind of one of the shorter-barreled NEFs. Yeah, here here's the issue. The youth stocks on those are terrible. They're terrible for an adult, even a rather small adult. Your wife, unless she's four foot ten or something like that, is not too small to use a full-size shotgun stock. Now, it might be better that that length of pull, which is the distance from where the, 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 the butt of the stock nestles in your, your shoulder to where your finger touches that trigger, that length of pull, it might be better that it was an inch shorter if she was going to be knocking skeet out of the air or shooting at, you know, uh, timber doodles. Anybody know what a timber doodle is? Woodcock. Um, or shooting passing shots at ducks or something like that. But to shoot uh, in, in, you know, in a home defense situation, it, it, it's not really that big a deal. Um, the issue when you start looking at shotguns for home defense, the mythology is you don't have to be very accurate with a shotgun because a shotgun has this, you know, big spray pattern. Uh, in home defense situations, you're probably looking at an average just on statistics of six to 11 feet. And in, in six feet, uh, the pattern of your shotgun is about uh, a quarter inch bigger than diameter of the bore when it comes out. And at about 10 feet, uh, it's about the size of a softball. Maybe there's a stray pellet or two going here or there. But in all intents and purposes, it's not any more forgiving accuracy-wise. Now, it does have certain damage potential, depending on the ammo that, that, that makes up for some things. But it's not really any more accurate than anything else. So the first thing I'd question is, why a shotgun? Now, if it's, well, I want a shotgun that we can keep around, that I can shoot raccoons off the back porch with, and, you know, I can take out the backfield and pop a rabbit with, and it's good for home defense, and I don't have much money, and I just want kind of a do-it-all utility gun. Okay, all right. Um, I'd actually say then go down to a couple different local gun stores, bigger ones, that, that do a lot of business and use guns. And you would probably find a pretty nice side-by-side 20-gauge double shotgun for under $200 if you do that. I, I saw a beautiful one for $215 about three years ago when I was at a gun store up in Plano, Texas. And if you can't tell, I'm still pissed off at myself for not buying it. I don't need it, but God, it was a beautiful little gun. Two shots instead of one. Okay, that's an advantage right there. Okay, gauge. If I'm going to use a, a shotgun for... Not for a tactical police gun. I'm going to use a shotgun for home defense. A 20 gauge will kill a bad guy just as dead as a 12 gauge will, deader than a nail. Okay? It, it, there's no reason to step up to that if you're going to get a gun that your wife's going to shoot and she's going to become comfortable with so she can use it. If she's getting the snot knocked out of her by heavy 12 gauge shells, that's not good. This is another reason I don't like the single shots, especially a small frame NEF. 
with the with the the shorter stock that's made for a youth, it's a little tough on kids, but they usually adapt to it because it is size to them. It's not size to an adult, even a small framed adult, and it beats the shit out of your face. It beats the shit out of your shoulder. It doesn't fit right. You don't hit well with it because when you use a shotgun, essentially your eye is the rear sight and the beat is the front sight, and that barrel should be invisible to you. That barrel should be dead flat, your eye to it, and you can't do it with those short stocks. I would say another option, you look at something like a base model tactical Mossberg 500. Uh, I see those at gun shows all the time. For uh, They have MSRPs on them, $400 and stuff. I see them all the time, specials at gun sto- shows, pretty much the stripped-down version, $300, $350. I can still shoot a raccoon with it. I can still take it out back and pop a rabbit with it. It's much better suited to the purpose. Yes, you got to rack the slide, but honestly... If you have a small shooter, it's easier to rack a slide than pull that hammer back on that NEF. And the only way to put that NEF on safe, or that sing, most of these single-shot shotguns on safe, is to have the hammer down. That means in a situation where I grab the gun for defense, I have to now use my thumb and cock that. And it's more likely, to, to when you're freaked out, to be something you don't do well than if, if it was just click the safe off, or even... Push down a button and rack a slide. All right? So I'd be more toward the, the base tactical model, short-barreled uh, 870 Mossberg 500 than I would to an NEF single shot. And I would definitely be toward kind of a nice 20-gauge double barrel before I'd go to NEF single shot. And I'd go to the tactical Mossberg or Remington before I would go to the double barrel and so on down. Now, if I'm going to be using it around the house for home defense... The best option is probably a good quality handgun. I know it costs more money. Your life is worth it, and so is your wife's. You don't have to worry about it being small for your wife. A full-size handgun can be used by a 12-year-old girl. I've got videos of a 12-year-old girl with a Glock 19. Did it make you look sad? Uh, She couldn't keep up with her. And she's not a big 12-year-old girl. If a 12-year-old girl can shoot a Glock 19, your wife can shoot a Glock 19. And a bigger handgun has less recoil, and therefore, since you're keeping it at home, and here's the deal. <clears throat> There's somebody at the front door. It's kind of a weird time. I don't like the way that it is or whatever. I'm not sure about it, but I don't want to just leave them there and hope that they'll go away. So I grab my shotgun. I head to the door to check on what's going on. I open the door, and it's somebody that wants to tell me about Jesus. And I now have a shotgun in their face. Even if it's not in their face, they feel like it's in their face. They freak out and go tell the sheriff that I pulled a shotgun on them because they brought Jesus to my door. And you can just keep working out other scenarios like that. Same thing goes on. I'm going to go to the door. I reach in and, and pull out my, you know, if it's not on my body, I pull out, let's say, my little cig or my Walter or something like that and keep it behind my back or put it in my waistband or whatever. And I go to the door, and I realize it's Henrietta that wants to sell me cookies or tell me about Jesus or whatever it is. And I say, I'm not interested right now, whatever, and go away, but I haven't said anybody. If it is somebody that means to do me harm, and as I approach the door, they have somebody with eyes on me and they see gun, that ramps up the attack, where if they don't know it, when they do try to push their way into the door, they meet Mr. Smith and Weston or Mr. Walther in a big hole in their head. Right. So in every way, I see in general, the handgun is a better home defense weapon than short barrel carbines, tactical shotguns, and stuff like that. Not that they don't work well. 
I mean, the one thing about a shotgun, with the proper ammo in it, they have a huge percentage of one-shot stops. Not 100%, but one of the highest percentage of one-shot stops. So you, you kind of have to balance all of this. And again, if I was going to use a shotgun as my primary home defense tool, I'd want a short-barreled, I'm talking like 18 inches, down maybe to 16 is about as far as you can go without needing a special permit or whatever, uh, a, a pump, or if you have the money for it, semi-auto. And no matter what, when people start saying, I'm going to get a gun and I want it to fit me and my wife, here's what I hear. My wife doesn't use guns, but I believe if I have a gun and she needs it, she'll go get it and use it. <clears throat> Wrong. You, <laughs> if you were going to go with single-shot NEFs, they're 80 bucks, dude. And if you really want one that fits both of you, buy two. I'm just being a little tough love there at the end with both of those things. Whatever you get, if you're going to believe that any member of your family is going to use it, not only do they have to use it once, they have to be able to use it, go through the motions, get some snap caps. You know what snap caps are? Plastic shells that don't go off, that are for training purposes. Make sure you've cleared anything so nobody's going to die and run it through drill after drill after drill. Pick it up, load it. Work the action, cock it, fire it, put the safety on, take the safety off. You've yelled at the guy, he's on the ground. How do you handle yourself? You don't want to kill him, you don't want him to move. How do you speak? I remember the first time I taught my wife this, and I'm like, we're out back and I have a shotgun, and I'm like, and I explained to her, so let's say there's somebody there and I want him on the ground. And I went really, really violent sounding, louder than I'll do on the, on the air right now, but get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground! And I'm like, say that. She didn't want to say it. I'm like, you, you have to say that. You have to sound like that. If you don't want to kill somebody, if you want the option not to pull the trigger, they have to believe that you're going to. And it, so if you start messing around with this is for home defense, either mean it or find another option. And that's for everybody, not just the caller. So I didn't mean to beat you up there, but I, I hear that all the time. And nine times out of ten, when I start picking it apart, it's a woman that's never touched a gun in her life, or she shot once when she was in Girl Scouts or something like that. She doesn't know nothing about guns, and a guy wants a gun that fits her too. It's it's a recipe for if it's ever needed, it probably won't be used. Or when she goes to use it, she won't be comfortable with it, and the person that she needs to use it on will take it away from her. Uh, Got to give you the honest, straight truth like I always do. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, how are you doing? Dave Hale from the farm. Um, you said on your last show that a degree from college is kind of equivalent to a 1980 high school degree, which I don't disagree with. What would a high school degree be worth now then? Uh, what's the equivalent of that? Let me know. Thanks. In, in, in practice, it's got value in employment because if you tell an employer today, and you're not a kid still in school, you don't even have a high school diploma, they, 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 they tend to look at you as being completely worthless and completely useless. Um, so in, in theory, I should say, not in practice, but in theory, it has the value that it qualifies you for just about any entry-level job that doesn't require a college degree. Okay? Um, That said, I think in practice, unless you appear to be really, really slow and make the person question it, I don't know that it has any value at all for an employer. 
It has value because there's an education there. I don't want to, I'm hard on public education, but knowing how to read and write and function, that's all important. But let's say I don't have a college degree and I go down to um, a restaurant to get a job as a waiter and they're saying they're taking new hires, they'll train you to be a waiter even if you have no experience and I need money and I like money. Some of you know where that's from. I like money too. What are the odds? Okay, so I need money because I like money and I have no money so I'm willing to be, go, be a waiter and take a, a, a job at a not-so-great restaurant because uh, they're not so great because they have to train new waiters. They can't hire experienced waiters because experienced waiters go to a better place. So I need an entry-level place into a service industry. And I go down and I fill out my application, and it says, where did you graduate? And I say, Pottsville Area High School. And they say, what year did you graduate? I said, 1990. Okay. If I say I didn't graduate, I may not get the job. The odds that that restaurant is actually going to verify that I, in fact, did graduate from Pottsville Area High School, I have to believe is very low. I have now some of these bigger chain restaurants and all like let's say while somewhere for on the border they have an actual HR department somebody up there may run checks like I don't know but I just don't th I have to tell you that every job that I've ever gotten where it's asked where I graduated for high school I just have this feeling that no one ever bothered to check it was just assumed that must be true so I think the value of a, of a high school diploma today in function in the world is it qualifies you to get into college. I really do. Now, again, that's not the value of the knowledge, but it's what it does. It qualifies you to get into college. I certainly think that anybody that just quits, takes the six months off, and goes and passes the GED is on equal standing with anybody else who actually graduated from high school. I don't think it has that much. And I think the value of diplomas and degrees is going to continue to dwindle to a point where people are going to start questioning whether they even matter at all. I mean, what is a high school diploma? It means you've completed the 12th grade. Well, does that really matter? Maybe. But let's be honest. You can go to high school today and take the easiest courses there are get straight A's and come out and be less educated than, than the student who was highly motivated and took more aggressive, higher-level courses and came out with a B. You'd be far less educated. You both get the same, the same diploma. Now, yes, if you're going to college, that type of thing matters. But when you go to get a job in a factory and, you have, and they say, well, you have to have a high school diploma so at least we know you're educated enough to run a machine... Um, they don't give a damn really what courses you took. And if you say I took, you know, if you're taking for a job that has like business parts to it, you business courses, they're not going to go pull your high school freaking transcript. I, now, if, if I'm wrong about that, if you're someone in one of these companies that works in HR and, and you routinely hire people without college degrees and you actually pull things like high school transcripts, I would love to hear from you because I've actually always wondered about this. Because I've gone in, applied for jobs, especially when I was getting started, and basically been made an offer on the spot. Well, if you're making me the offer on the spot, you know, and I know you didn't pull my freaking high school transcript or even verify because I was watching you and you didn't do it. So I don't know that there's anything that it does for you anymore other than if you can answer the question with a yes or certain jobs that are open to you that might not otherwise be. Um... 
Though I almost feel like a job today that doesn't require a college degree, if you are articulate, you are able to prove that you could do the job, they're probably not going to care that you don't have a high school diploma either. I, I almost think all it is today is a certificate that says you can now go to college. And again, I'd love to hear from someone in HR with either thing. Yeah, we do it, we ask and we never check, or we ask and we check. I, I, I mean, I know people have gotten burned. I've heard of people that claim they graduate from a college or something and, and didn't, and they've gotten burned and they had an offer and they lost it when it was checked on. I've never heard of that with high school, ever, at all. In fact, trying to think back to being that young and asking for you know the kind of jobs where they would ask that question up front, did you go to high school? Yeah, did you graduate? Yeah, that was pretty much it. So unless you're just going to be blatant honest and tell them no, I don't know. I don't know, and I'm not advising you to lie. I'm just saying, when you ask me this question and I start looking at the value of a piece of paper today, I hate to say this for you seniors that are going to graduate this year, I don't think it doesn't mean a damn thing unless you want to go to college or tech school or something and they require it. And I'll bet you there's tech schools and shit like that where they don't even care if you graduate high school. I'll bet you, like, if you want to go to welder school or something, they might not, you know, if you have enough math skills to do the math part of it, they might not care whether you have a diploma or not. They might. I don't know. It, it might depend on whether you're using grant money and stuff. I don't know. But I think all it is is a, uh, it's getting like this. When parents have so lost their flipping minds now that they have graduation ceremonies for kindergarten, and the piece of paper you get for kindergarten graduation pretty much qualifies you to go to first grade. I think that's where we're heading. And you people behind graduation ceremonies for kindergarten, freaking shame on you. You guys are idiots. I'm sorry. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Richard. My question is regarding whether or not you can be an anarchist or a minarchist libertarian or really kind of a, a somewhere around that specific area and still work for the federal and or state government. I know that everyone's opinions are the same, and there's varying degrees of, uh, of what's allowable, I guess, depending on who you ask and any of those camps. Uh, I'm just wondering your specific opinion on whether or not that that can jive, whether you can be one and work for them or not, or whether or not that's uh, a form of hypocrisy or it's similar to just taking advantage of all the, uh, the tax benefits. I've heard the same thing with the uh, Oath Keepers in the military of, uh, or, you know, of any kind of like-minded individuals of, you know, how can you be in the military or law enforcement and still be that and kind of a would you rather have them or somebody else. But anyways, I appreciate your opinions. Thank you. Bye. Well, it's another one of those ones where no matter how you answer, you're going to piss somebody off. So whatever, I'll piss everybody off, I guess. Um, here's how I feel about this. It, it depends a great deal on how you practice your life as an anarchist. When I have a problem with an anarchist that has a job, whether it's for the government or let's say, you know, what is the difference between a person that is an anarchist but works for the government that is a mechanic that fixes cars that, that government employees drive? And a person that works, let's say, for John Deere building tractors that are largely paid for with, with government money through government subsidies, incentives, etc. Is there really a difference? 
And the, the, the commonality is that neither one of them's going out and, and causing problems for other people. They're, they're not going out and putting a guy in jail because his shed's on the wrong part of his property or something like that. So my biggest problem with anarchists that have a particular job like that, let's say the John Deere one, so it's not direct government, is when they talk shit about other people that do have government-employed jobs that claim to be libertarians, minarchists, or anarchists. As though their shit doesn't stink. I'm sorry, that's the only way to put it. right? And I remember my grandmother used to tell me, we, we thought her shit didn't stink, but it, not her, but hit, you know, third party. They, they thought her shit didn't stink, but their farts gave them away. Right? And that's how I feel about some of these people. They start just bashing soldiers or cops or whatever. And then they say, well, you know, I am free of this. And you're like, well, where do you work for? And I had one guy that was just beating the shit out of any government service guy. And when I finally got him, it was a guy on a blog. And when he finally said who he worked for, he worked for John Deere. I'm like, you guys took billions in subsidies last year. Billions in government money. Don't don't go crapping on somebody. You know, I have to have a job. So do they. So I think there's some leniency there. Now, this all depends. I was not born an anarchist, and most of us that come around to anarchist philosophy, unless we're born anarchist parents who do a really good job of enlightening us as children, are not anarchists when we're 18, 20 years old, if we're productive people anyway. We believe that the other that what anarchists are at that point are our contemporaries at our same age that wear black shirts and don't have jobs and sit in their basement playing video games, wearing a shirt, and saying everybody else sucks while they live off the system just the same. Right, So we get into our lives, and we might join the military, we might go into law enforcement, we probably want to do good things like everybody else. We might end up with a job fixing cars for the, the local courthouse as the mechanic for the city. You could end up as, a, I mean, as the janitor who's an government employee. Is he infringing on people's liberties? He's helping by sweeping the floor. There are people that extreme. Okay, Now, I know... There are law enforcement officers that listen to this show that I am chinking away at their statist brainwashing. They are becoming more open. They are becoming more gravitated toward liberty than they ever would without being exposed to these ideas. They're questioning the things that they have to do daily. They're also saying, you know, I do have a job to do. And the majority of time when we are arresting someone, it's somebody that broke into somebody's house and took somebody's stuff or just beat up a little kid or we're tracking a guy down for a murder and getting people's property back. So don't bash the shit out of me. And I don't. And we should. Because here's what I would ask you. If every officer of the law, if every military person, if everybody that starts to come around to these ideas just quit, how many would that be? Uh, just enough to not matter as far as taking away the force of the state, but just enough to let the force of the state be more aggressive and worse. See, one good cop that, that is in a situation where there's a couple kids with a bag of grass... And there's another cop there that wants to put him in jail. And the guy says, shut up, rookie. Shut up. We're not going to ruin these kids. Give, give me that. And, and, and trashes it so the situation doesn't go anywhere else. He says, get the hell home. I don't want to see you guys again. It, it, it to me, is more important than 
Because of my principles, I will no longer partake in this. But I think if that's your job, you might reach a point where you have to make that determination, and you may come down on, I can't do this anymore. Because sooner or later, you're going to be asked to do something you absolutely know is morally wrong. And you're going to have two choices, do it or quit. So it also has a lot to do with, well, what is the job? You know, what is the job? A code enforcement officer would be an example. So a guy that goes around and does code enforcement, he'd say that's the antithesis of anarchists. I'm telling people where they can put their shit and all. But who would you like to have in that position? Hey, look, let me explain this to you. Um, you got complaints from neighbors and stuff over this. I'm going to come out here and say I gave you a verbal warning. Clean this up. Put something up over there so they can't see it no more. I'll go tell them that we've taken care of it and we find you, even though I'm not going to. They don't need to know that. And just let's try to put a lid on this. Or, I have no way to do anything other than follow the book. Here's your citation. You'll be fined $200 a day. Do you see what I'm saying? Anarchists and minarchists and libertarians in the system can use what they know and can refuse to use their power at times or redirect their power at times. Now, here's the other thing. If you are an anarchist and you don't have one of these jobs, then I think you have to really think about what you're doing if you decide you want one. I'm proud of my service in the Army. I really am. And I'm proud of it more not because I think I defended freedom. I don't think I defended freedom. When people say you defended freedom, I didn't defend freedom. I, I built a road in, in, in schools for kids in Honduras, okay? As part of a project that did that. To me, that's a, as far as doing good, that's enough. Don't tell me I defended your freedom. I didn't defend your freedom. You served during time of war. I didn't defend your freedom. You know, I, I, I'm, I, was, I served during the first Gulf War. Saddam Hussein wasn't going to attack America. I didn't defend your freedom. I'm not a freedom fighter. I was a guy with a job, a noble job, I believe, in many ways. My problem with the military is I think they take the most noble from us, turn them into killers, convince them they're doing the right thing to defend freedom, make them believe it, use them until they're no longer useful, and discard them like a Kleenex. And then the same government that does that shits on you if you say anything negative about any of those people when they're the ones that are the greatest abusers of them. So I don't think it's a cut-and-dry answer. And I know there's pure standard. If you're an anarchist, you would never do it. You would never take a gun from the guy. And they're driving on a government road right now, and their car's using oil that was purchased at the same expense of life that everybody else's was. And, and I, I don't think you're being sincere when you come off with this purest thing. We had a guy on the blog recently, very, very upset that, that Rob Kaiser and I talked about uh, cost-share programs uh, where you get a high tunnel and part of your high tunnel paid for if you were into you know agricultural production. You're taking government money. It's like crack. Once you take some, you can't, you can't hold back. You're going to take more, and they're going to take over your whole life. And you know what? I guess there's people like that that are addicts, like we talked about earlier. But that doesn't mean that Rob's an addict because he got he got a fifteen thousand dollar tunnel for 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 five thousand dollars. That money was already stolen from people, and it was already going to be taken anyway. And the way I look at that is, if the government extorts sixty thousand dollars worth of my wealth in a year, 
Until I take $60,001, that's my money I'm taking back. And I'll take back every bit of it I can. I will, I will do everything I can to legally not pay my taxes. Morally, I think it's completely moral and right that I would tell the government, F you, no more. You don't get a dime and refuse to pay any tax whatsoever. But since I don't want to dance with Bubba in the shower, I'm not going to do that. So I'm adapting. So right there, most anarchists, they have income, they pay income taxes, they say that I have to, but it's still morally wrong that that money goes to you. So if you were going to stand up on your purest moralism, then you would say I'm not paying as a, as a, as a protest against everybody else that it's taken from. See, I, I think, that, again, that, that if you're a, a, an anarchist or a minarchist or a libertarian with a real brain that really thinks you start to understand this is your philosophy of life. This is what guides your decisions. This is what steers how you view things and helps you make decisions for the sake of morality. Okay, It's not about politics. It's about morality. And that means that you will be in situations where you will have to make decisions, and sometimes those decisions could result in you being dead or incarcerated, And that's probably not going to help you continue to fight for liberty. It's probably not. Um, when, when, when you had people that had infiltrated, let's say, Hitler's inner circle with espionage, they may at times have to set or do things that made them look like the worst person on planet Earth, but they had to do that so they could fulfill their agenda, which was to end the tyranny. You know, I mean, take it back to cops. There's there's cops that have probably smoked dope with a perp so that the cop that get, can really kind of sell the guy on the fact that, you know, I'm not a cop. You can say that's unethical, but again, it's a, it's, it's not an analogy. It's not that I'm saying good or bad. It's an analogy. There's there 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 is no there are very few anyway anarchists out there that are truly living 100% the ideals of anarchy because it's so damn difficult to do. I've heard people say to me, well, if you're an anarchist, why don't you just run off in the woods and live off the woods and just stay away and not partake in anything? Well, first of all, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to because if human beings were left to themselves, the voluntary association would allow for all of the wonderful things that we have and more. So I shouldn't have to. But second of all, I can't. Where would you like me to go? Where can I go live off the, the fat of the land, so to speak, and not be committing a federal felony or a state felony while I'm doing it? there is no place to go be left alone. There's not like they said, you know what? You anarchists and libertarians are such a pain in the ass. What we're going to do, we're going to take a state. Just pick a big state that's mostly empty already, Wyoming. And we're going to say, Wyoming is, is, is anarchotopia. And if you want to be an anarchist, you go to freaking Wyoming. Anybody that doesn't like it, We picked it because it's got a low population. We will buy your property in Wyoming for five times what it's worth as of today's value, and we will give you full moving assistance to go to any of the other 49 states, and Wyoming will forever be known as Anarchotopia. You anarchists go to freaking Wyoming and shut up. You do whatever you want. If you kill yourselves, we don't care. It's yours, and no one's allowed in there unless they're an anarchist, and, you're, you're, and you guys run your own thing. But when you come outside of those borders, you have to live. You know why they wouldn't do it? Be the wealthiest state. The wealthiest state in the country in 20 years. 
There'd be people clamoring to get in. And the first thing people would want to do when they got in, set up rules. They weren't already there. And set up a form of government, and they'd be told to get out. Right? And it'd probably start to expand. It would take over Montana and the whole Northwest. And, right? I mean, that's, that's how I see things. But that might be a little fanciful, by the way. But, but I think there, there's something to reality there. The more freedom you give people, the more wonderful things they're able to get done. And they, we don't have that. That's my point. There's no place for me to go to. Where would you have me go to? Anywhere I go where there's large expanses of land, it's either controlled by the state or the super state. And you can't hunt right now. It's not in season. You got to buy a license. But I went away to the woods to leave you alone. No, you got to have a license. You can't pick that plant. No, 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 no. That's a protected plant. I need medicine. No, you can't have that. No, no. Right? I mean, that's reality. So we have to compromise. We have to compromise to, in order to exist. Otherwise, we're miserable or incarcerated or dead. And I'm not going to be miserable, incarcerated, or dead to make somebody else happy about what they think I should do. Because this is what I found with most people that are these purist anarchist types. They're full of shit. You start examining their lives, and they are they are they have as many places that they're choosing to interact as you do, as many places that they're compromising as you do, but I'm not in working for the government. Yeah, you work for John Deere. Or, you know, you, you look at the company they work for, and that company exists solely to support a government contractor or something. One guy, he, he ended up, he worked for Lockheed. Lockheed wouldn't even have a dollar to its name if it wasn't for government spending. All, every piece of our economy today is tied into the fascist super state. But no, I don't think if you are an anarchist, you should pursue a career as a state trooper or a sheriff's deputy. But if you're a sheriff's deputy or a state trooper, and you start to come around to this way of thinking you do have a certain amount of vested interest in staying where you are, and you may be able to do more good than bad from within the system. I know cops look the other way. I've seen it done. You people that shit on cops, you know what? One day you probably will need one. You probably will. You know, I do, do I want a stateless society? Yes, but if I was on a jury... And some guy raped a child, would I vote guilty? You bet your ass I would. You, it, that's what a prison's perfect for. Somebody like that. But am I going to say I'll never serve on a jury because I'm an anarchist? Hell no. Because wouldn't it be great if they called me in to serve on a jury? They put me through jury selection. I got on the jury, and it turned out that the case was being heard as the guy was being busted for growing marijuana plants in his bedroom. Mr. Spirko, how do you vote? Not guilty. But the... Not guilty. Sorry, not guilty. But the law is... Um, are you tampering with a jury? Not guilty. By the way, I can talk to all my other jury friends about my opinion because I'm part of the jury. You can't tell us how to vote or you're creating a legal injustice. So go away. I said not guilty. I mean... Do you see how being a purist would deny you the opportunity to do something like that? It absolutely would. 
I'll probably never be on a jury for because I'm public. People know that. But I mean, I'm thinking that, like a lot of you out there probably are like, I, I wouldn't put a guy in jail because he grew five marijuana plants in his garage or something like that. I don't really care. But if you were an anarchist, say, I refuse to serve on a jury because I'm an anarchist. Okay, that guy's going to jail, and you could have kept him out. I, I think we to be balanced, we have to start looking at things that way. And again, what do you do for the government? I met a guy out in Louisiana. You know what he does? He goes around to the gas stations and tests the pumps to make sure the, 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 the pumps aren't shortchanging the customer and make sure the merchant's honest. and puts a little sticker on there, and every six months those pumps have to be certified. He actually told me, you know, my job's necessary. And we're like, me, me, and, me and Josiah look at each other and go, no, it's not. And the guy's like, well, what would you do? I'm like, well, if there, you didn't have a, a job doing what you do, then car manufacturers long ago would have built – Uh, a system into the car that measured the fuel as it flowed into the car, so the car would tell you you're not getting ripped off. And a fixed cavity is 100% accurate, so if anybody really felt like they were being ripped off, they could go down to a, 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 a pump with a five-gallon can, put five gallons in it and look at it, and then put you know hold up a sign, this guy's ripping people off. I mean, the market would correct it. But is he hurting anybody? He's being paid with stolen money. Yeah, you probably are too one way or another. You probably are too, one way or another. I mean, so that, that's the best I can do. It's not an easy one. It's not an easy one. But no, I don't think an anarchist should go to work doing things like law enforcement. But if you're already there, and you've, and again, you use libertarian, minarchist, and anarchist as the same thing. There is no conflict with a libertarian working in the system as long as they uphold libertarian values wherever and whenever they can. There's none there because they are for a minimal state. Got it? All right. So with that, I want to wrap up today with our song of the day. Uh, I said it would come back a little bit toward, toward John here in West Virginia, and it does. This song is, is one of my favorite songs of all time, even though it's a relatively new song. Most of the stuff I play for you is 20, 30 years old or older. But this is by Aaron Lewis, and I, I love a lot of stuff Aaron Lewis does. And, and no, it, it's, it's not... Um, the song that you've heard me play from him before. I've actually never played this song. It's called Vicious Circles. And I want to read a few of the words to you before I play the song to you, and then I want you to really listen to the words, because this is a beautiful, soulful song. Um, but the first line is, or first stanza is, if I could walk on water like Jesus did before, if I knew all the answers to keep you coming back for more, if I could paint a picture and then cut off my own ear, If I could choose all the right colors, would this just disappear? So it's 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 like a breakup, is what I read into that. I'm losing someone. Would this just disappear? If I if I could just do these things that other people from the past, I mean, obviously the paint a picture in the ears, Van Gogh, beautiful artwork, or if I could speak with the eloquence of of, of, of Jesus, right? Then then maybe we would stay together or maybe this wouldn't happen whatever it is it might not just be a guy losing his woman it could be anything it could be losing someone to death it could be uh, a, a, just a massive tragedy in your life that this would fit uh, the the chorus then is because we run in vicious circles until we're dizzy with disdain and there's miles and miles between us yet we still remain it's pretty Pretty good poetry there for a country music guy, huh? For a redneck from Massachusetts, by the way. Um, 
you think about that. Our lives are so complex that we're just constantly, basically in, a, in, a, in this circular pattern, trying to make it. And we, we do this to the point where we wear ourselves out, yet we, we still remain. We're still here. We still have to keep going. We still have to keep trying. And I think a lot of people that listen to this song and like it miss something really special in the next part of it. If I could write a poem and find the perfect words. So it sounds like we're going back to that. If I could be like Shakespeare or whatever. But he says, and then put it all to music just so my voice gets heard. And then goes back into that chorus again. Well, that's what he's done. If I could do this, but he is doing this. And in these vicious circles in our lives, whether it's trying to find our freedom or get out of debt or work out a relationship or work through a tragedy or get through a shit-hit-the-fan experience for ourselves or our neighbors, whatever it is, what we have to do in it is find our way to be heard or find our way to make a difference. And instead of worrying about, can this guy really call himself an anarchist because he works for Lockheed, we should be worrying about, well, what do I do? What can I do? And where can I make a difference with what I have available to me right now? How can my voice be heard? Because my voice is heard because I'm a podcaster. Aaron Lewis's voice is heard because he has talent as a musician. If I tried to be a musician, I think I would do a lousy job. And Aaron Lewis seems like a pretty nice guy, but I don't know that he could do a podcast like I do every day. For for us to be effective, we've had to find the things that we follow our passions with, and this is what happens. When you actually find that, you break the vicious circle. You break the vicious circle. You realize that you have become dizzy with disdain, and yet... You still remain. You're still there. You got through it. And now you can fight through the dizziness and plot a course to get things done that matter for yourself, for your family, for your life, for others. Listen to this song. Listen to the words now far more eloquently than I could ever put them. And I think this will be one of those songs that if you've heard it before, when you listen to it now, it'll be like the first time you've ever heard it. You'll actually hear the words. When I played Teach the Children from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the other day I had quite a few people tell me that the way that came out from the end of that song, they actually heard every word in that song for the first time. I'd like that to happen to you for this one right now. Give it a shot. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
keep you coming back for more. If I could ride upon and then cut off my own ear, if I chose all the right colors. This just disappeared Because We run in vicious circles Until we're Dizzy with disdain And there's There's miles and miles between us If I could ride upon them and find the perfect words, and then put them all to music, just so my voice gets heard. Until we're